theme for this morning, or maybe it's better a question, is why did God become man? It's a very important question to ask, and we need to recognize that though many people may take part in Christmas celebrations this time of year, that doesn't mean that they're asking that question. The medieval theologian Anselm of Canterbury had a work by the title, Why the God-Man? Why the God-Man? And he raised an important question. Why did God become man? Why was that necessary for our salvation, for our entrance into heaven? And I fear that today, too few in the church are asking this question and pondering the biblical answer. It seems, especially this time of year in what we might call nominal Christianity, that the incarnation has just become a given. Well, of course God became man. It's as though in Christianity we are no longer amazed and captivated by either the question, why the God-man, or the answer that the scripture provides. Are we moved to gratitude and praise for the incarnation of Jesus Christ? And moreover, I think it's a relevant question for us as believers who hold firmly to the deity of Jesus Christ. Because in what might be a reaction against the false teaching that, well, Jesus was just a man, we may focus on the deity of Jesus to the neglect of his humanity. I pointed out how the, the writer to the Hebrews does not shy away from the humanity of Jesus, but he presents it, he glories in it, and he shows us the benefit of the fact that our Savior is both God and man. And the scriptures very much present Jesus this way, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New. That to be our Savior, Jesus had to become the God-man. 100% God, 100% man, in two natures and one person forever. We're told in 1 Timothy 2.5 that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Well, from the outset, we need to establish that God did not have to become man. That God owed nothing to his sinful, rebellious creation. And it should amaze us then that this God who was obligated to no one except himself, this God who could have, after the fall, completely dissolved this universe and been completely just in doing so, that not only does he not dissolve the universe, 
but he demonstrates his perfect, unconditional love by sending his only son to take on flesh and be our savior. See, friends, this question, why the God-man and the biblical answer, it should amaze us and it should captivate us and it should move us to praise of our great God. Now, we could say in many ways, the entire Bible from beginning to end answers this question. Why did God become man? I mean, think about the, the, the first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15. It would be the seed of the woman. A man, a son that would bring salvation. But for our focus this morning, we're going to look at Hebrews 2. And I think we can glean four reasons why Jesus took on flesh and became like us in every respect except sin. Why did Jesus have to take on our humanity? Why did he have to die and be raised for us to know salvation? Well, the first reason is to conquer. To conquer. The, the conquest of sin and Satan required the incarnation. And that might seem like a strange place to start until we remember that that's where the Bible starts. The Bible's first promise of salvation in Genesis 3.15 refers not First, to the forgiveness of Adam's sin, but to the overcoming of Adam's enemy, the devil. If you really think about it, that first gospel promise, sometimes called the proto-evangelum, the, the first gospel promise, I think we tend to forget it's a violent picture. It implies conflict, but also a decisive victory by the seed of the woman. The Lord said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, that first gospel promise tells us that the, the conquest of sin and Satan, that our deliverance required the incarnation. The seed or the offspring of the woman, that indicated right away that God would have to become man in order to conquer for us. And thus, in the book of Hebrews, salvation is described in terms of being delivered from Satan's grip. If you just glance at verses 14 and 15 from chapter 2, uh, that he is the one who has the power of death and he holds men and women in bondage by their fear of death. Yes, we need pardon, but we also need deliverance. And the Bible really, with that gospel promise in Genesis 3, we could say the Bible begins and it ends on this note 
of Christ being our conqueror. Revelation is all about Jesus, the conqueror. It's filled with images of war and battle, images of violence, and we are told that this is a war that Jesus wins for us to deliver us. You see, we needed to be freed from the grasp of the devil. We are born into this world on the wrong side of the battle. We're captive. We're aligned with the serpent. That's why when we read these words in Genesis 3, these are words of salvation to Adam and Eve. When he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. In other words, if the Lord hadn't done that, Adam and Eve would have remained uh, aligned with Satan and have enmity against the Lord. But he saved them. This salvation could only be accomplished if someone could pay the wages of sin, which gives death its grip, and which gives Satan his power over us, and then meant to do that, it required entering into the experience of dying. And yet somehow in death, overcoming death. And the person who could do this would need to have a, a strange combination of qualifications. First, they would have to personally be free from sin to be free from the need to die for their own sin secondly they would be have to be willing and able to die in order to engage death and satan and sin and third they would have to be in the possession of the power to take up their life again No natural son of Adam, no mere man could ever meet those qualifications. All of us are born into this world in sin, having to pay the wages of sin in our death. And yet at the same time, no one outside of the human race is capable of possessing these qualifications. This is our dilemma. This is our problem. And friends, that means we should look then with joy and gratitude upon the brilliant divine wisdom in the gospel. Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15 says that Christ too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. By taking our human nature, Jesus, the Son of God, lived the life, died the death, gained the victory and resurrection that makes freedom from Satan's grip possible. 
It's a salvation, a deliverance that would not have been possible without the God-man. Now, as we think about this, this image of Christ as our conqueror, it's important for us to remember, do you believe in a Jesus who is a great conqueror? And when we sing in the Psalms, the Lord of hosts, you know what that means? He's the Lord of armies. He is the conqueror, and in him we conquer. Jesus became man to conquer, but secondly, he became man to atone, to atone for sin. Atonement was impossible without the incarnation. In verse 17 of Hebrews 2, we are told why the Son of God had to be made like his brothers in every way. It is so that he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, our salvation requires not only conquest of our enemy, not only deliverance from Satan and sin, but the more the removal of a more terrifying enemy. The wrath of the holy and righteous God of heaven. His wrath had to be satisfied. That's what that word propitiation means. A satisfaction. Purification. Satisfaction. Atonement must be made for the sins of the people. And as the book of Hebrews outlines, this was made clear to the people of God in the Old Testament by the constantly repeated ritual sacrifices that they were required to make. Those were teaching tools. They taught them that they deserved death because of their sins. But it also taught them that in the grace of of God, he would provide a sacrifice. He would provide blood to cleanse them from their sins. But even the Old Testament believer understood that those animal sacrifices could never really make lasting atonement for sins. That's what in Hebrews 10, the blood of bulls and goats could not atone for sin. The blood of bulls and goats could not atone for the sins of human flesh and blood. Only human flesh and blood would be an appropriate sacrifice to atone for sin. And moreover, in those animal sacrifices... None of those animals who figured out what was about to happen were willing sacrifices. Many of those animals went literally kicking and screaming. But the God-man went willingly, like a lamb led to the slaughter. Later in the book of Hebrews, in, in chapter 10, verses 5 to 7, 
we read, and again, he, here's another psalm that the writer quotes from and says it's about Jesus. He says, that when Christ came into the world, he said, a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. But then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Interesting construction there. There's a statement in the middle. Lord, you, in burnt offerings and offerings, for you've taken no delight in those. Those weren't the ultimate end and bracketed on either side of that statement about the Lord not taking pleasure in animal sacrifice is Christ declaring that he has come to offer himself as that final sacrifice for sin. You see, Jesus had to become man to die in our place, to bear the wrath of God that should have been upon us. But we need to remember he also took our nature in order to satisfy the righteous requirement of the law by obeying his father as the new Adam in our place. That is what brings us peace. And friends, this demonstrates to us the depth of God's love for us. On two occasions, when the Apostle John speaks of the incarnation, he, he does so in the sense of it showing forth the love of God for sinners. We, we know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He said it again in 1 John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Friends, do you see the great love of God for you in the fact that the father sent his son and that the son willingly took on flesh he willingly obeyed in your place and he willingly, like a lamb led to slaughter, laid down his life for you. God became man to conquer, to atone, but thirdly, he became man to comfort us. In the frailty of our weakness, Christ's incarnation provides real comfort to us. We can know that our Savior entered into our weak and frail frame. Verse 17, he was made like his brothers in every respect. But as the writer later says, but without sin. Now we need to remember that even though Jesus was without sin. His sinlessness did not mean that he was immune from the effects of sin, from the burdens of sin, whether it be in his life or in his death on the cross. 
You see, friends, it is precisely because Jesus was sinless that he tasted our temptations with a sensitivity and intensity that none of us will ever know. Because he resisted all of them. He never buckled under the weight as we do. You ever see those videos of those weightlifters taking taking the weight off the squat rack? They have so much weight on there, the bars bending over their back. Those strongest men, what do they do? They struggle to get out one repetition, and then what do they do? They rack the weight. The burden is relieved. Friends, Jesus never racked the weight. He never gave in, and that burden no doubt got heavier and heavier. And as we've seen in the Gospel of John, we can sense how troubled and burdened Jesus is. But there's a great comfort for us in that because we can be sure that whatever our experience of temptation or suffering, that Christ's was deeper precisely because his humanity was sinless. And friends, no one experienced more deeply the consequences and effect of sin than Christ did. On the cross, he knew the horrific consequences of the sin of all those that his father chose. Friends, as Christians, we can never say In the moment of trial, no one understands. Jesus understands and he is there to help you. He sympathizes with you. Friends, only a sinless Savior is able to die for our sins and only a sinless Savior is able to truly comfort us. And I think we need to remember this because we need to remember that fellow sinners who are so often overcome by sin, we cannot, they cannot ultimately help us to be overcomers. Yes, we need to seek the help and encouragement from each other. But my question is, are you looking primarily to Jesus for strength and comfort. As I have reflected on years in the ministry, and you you ask those hard questions, why, why do we see people become so unhappy and leave the church? And I think very often, we tend to look to fellow sinners and expect from them what we should only expect from Jesus. We expect too much of our sinful brothers and sisters and we expect too little of Jesus. Friends, the holy and wise God-man can help you to overcome. He can comfort you. And, And this isn't to say that we shouldn't seek to comfort each other. We can derive a measure of comfort from one another, but ultimately, 
the sinless Son of God comforts us. Sometimes we're asking too much. We, we, we look at our brothers and sisters and say they just don't, they don't understand what I'm going through. And sometimes that's okay. Sometimes we simply can't understand what someone else is going through. But we need to look to Jesus who does understand and is able to help. We can rejoice then that both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. That's, that's a different version than the, the ESV, but it reflects, I think, the meaning. And it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, brothers and sisters. Friends, never forget that you have a brother in heaven one who is like you, one who still dons his human flesh, who knows your frailty and weakness, who can sympathize, who can empathize, and who can help. So God became man to conquer, to atone, to comfort, but finally, God became man in order to bring us to glory, to bring us to glory. The writer says that it was fitting, fitting for him, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. God had to lead us to glory in a fitting way. And that word fitting, the, the Greek word, it refers to something that's that's suitable and proper and consistent. God had to save us in a way that was proper. In a way that was fitting with his perfect character. Justice had to be satisfied. Sin had to be punished. It couldn't just be overlooked. Redemption had to be accomplished, and the only way this could be done in a fitting way was by way of substitution. Someone had to suffer in our place. Someone had to obey the law in our place. And that is why the writer to the Hebrews said that this is God's plan. It is right. It is fitting for a holy and just God to bring us to glory through the God-man. Again, it's amazing. And God's justice was satisfied at the cross when the God-man bore the wrath of his Father for our sins. If God had not taken on human flesh, he could not have been our substitute. He couldn't have suffered and died if he would have remained God alone. Someone had to keep the law on our behalf. There needed to be a second Adam to bring us to glory. There had to be someone who made a new and living way into the Lord's presence. 
That is why the writer calls Jesus the the founder of our salvation. And uh, the difficulty of translating that word in the book of Hebrews comes out in the various ways it's translated. But the idea is a trailblazer, one who leads the way as our representative. Jesus didn't just lead the way. He is the way. And he doesn't just lead us, but he brings us. And again, reminded of his sovereign work in our salvation. He brings us. He does it all. After the fall, man could no longer achieve the state of blessedness that God had intended. A new way had to be made and it was fitting that the God-man, Jesus Christ, come to blaze this path of salvation for us. And friends, what, what a encouraging truth it should be to us that Jesus stands in our midst as one who has donned our flesh and he looks around and says, these are my brothers and my sisters. He says, here am I and the children that God has given me. And that, that reason of him bringing us to glory, that's, that appears in Psalm 24, the psalm with which we opened the service. And I pointed out to you that here we have a singular man who is pure, who alone can ascend the hill of the Lord. This is a picture of the ascension of Jesus Christ after his finished work. But what I want you to listen for is how the the tenses change. Here's the singular man. He he alone ascends the hill of the Lord. But then verse six, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. You see, the image here is of Jesus, the God-man, ascending to his Father and on the basis of his work, bringing the people that he died for into the very presence of God. He could only have done this by donning our flesh. And friends, I pray that as we're surrounded by Christmas celebrations, that we would not be desensitized, but rather we would be again amazed and captivated and be moved to gratitude and praise for the word who became flesh and tabernacled among us. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we do ask now that you might apply these words to us. Lord, we know that as we read earlier in that chapter, that we are so prone to drift from Jesus. We are so prone to neglect so great a salvation. We pray that your Holy Spirit would again captivate us by the truth that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Lord, we thank you that now our risen Savior 
still in heaven, dawns our flesh, sympathizing with us, comforting us and helping us. Oh Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for him crucified, buried, risen, and enthroned. May we look to him as our great conqueror and king. We pray in his great name. Amen.